my money. Money. I get money from you. Money in the bank. Young money. Money, 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 money. It's the rich man's blood. I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. World-renowned financial advisor and best-selling author Barry James Dyke will arm you with the truth. This is The Economic Warrior. Please note, the opinions expressed on this show are of the individuals who speak them, and not necessarily of Portsmouth Community Radio, its members, or board of trustees. Well, it's a beautiful uh, day in the neighborhood, uh, but it's about 85 today, uh, handsome Phil. Gorgeous New England weather. And, and we have our guest uh, here, Jay Childs, who did the documentary movie uh, about Mark Basket and Food Fight, and we're going to have him on around quarter past the hour. We're going to discuss that. So anyhow, so we get uh, Jay Childs, and uh, I get to actually know you through uh, get to know you through Vivian. Yes. M- mutual friend, Vivian Lefebvre, and, and Mark, who has a show here. And uh, so, so Jay, I, I know a little about you, but just please tell our audience about your background, where you came, and how you got into documentary business first uh well i um went to uh i was actually the editor of my school newspaper so i got a very early start in kind of the journalistic side of things which um i also thought would attract girls but it it (laughs) didn't do it at all um (laughs) and then right out um in college i studied um production journalism and communications um and thought at one point i was going to be a sports journalist but quickly was dispelled of that and really found that I liked being behind the camera and producing yeah. more than actually being out front. Um, back then, everyone wanted to be on TV and uh, it just wasn't my thing. So um, I graduated. I worked with um, now kind of the the chief historian of Portsmouth, Dennis Robinson, who was my journalism teacher in high school. He became my first boss and we had sort of a creative collaborative company of designers, writers, um, uh, illustrators. Um, Ralph Morang was a photographer, okay. part of it. So did that for a number of years as, as just as sort of film and video was kind of coming into being able to be done by more and more people. Um, I then worked for a, um, in a production company that was attached to Liberty Mutual's television department uh, for a few years. And then that used to be in the Dover Mills. Um, and they decided to move that down to Boston and said that I could come with them as a full-time producer, but I wouldn't. they wouldn't have this outside production company, which is what I really loved, yeah. working with clients and, and developing messaging and things like that. So I just thought about, you know, do I want to be, you know, God bless them, but do I want to be pu- pushing insurance messages the rest of my life? And I just decided no. <laughs> so I talked to the clients that I'd cultivated and said, if I buy an Avid, you know, and jump, will you come with me? And they said yes, as long as the quality was the same and the and the uh, and the uh, uh, price didn't go up. So I did that, and then um, kind of on the exit of that, um, worked with a, a couple of women, uh, one from the New Hampshire Breast Cancer Coalition, and did my really my first documentary called "Caring for Mo." Okay, um, and that was pretty successful. Um, what was it like a, a cancer? Uh uh, case or survivor or what happened? Yeah, well, no, it was yeah. about a woman who was a, a nurse, a caregiver, um, and she worked actually at Frisbee up in Rochester. Sure. And she was diagnosed with a very aggressive breast cancer, 
and kind of became on the other end of that equation. Now she was being taken care of by many of the very people who uh, she had were her colleagues. Okay. And what it really explored, and that's always been kind of my thing with documentary, I like them to be useful. You know, I don't want people to just watch and go, oh, well, that was, you know, interesting. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. But, you know, how can this move something forward, move the needle forward? And so we ended up partnering with um, Dartmouth Medical School and Norse Cotton Cancer Center and a couple of uh, people working there on the not really well-known world of palliative care. Yeah. And that was one of the big issues that came up in this in the story and in the film. And also um, the psychological and emotional care of doctors because they were finding that some of the best doctors for working with patients were burning out because yeah. a fair number of your patients passed Die. away. Yeah. So it became a curriculum case study for this new curriculum that Dr. Joe O'Donnell up at Norris Cotton Cancer Center and, and Dartmouth Medical School introduced on palliative care for patients and self-care for doctors well that's that's great so th th that's fantastic so did that one and then um uh let's see now you've done a, a tremendous body of work and where can people find out more about you by the way jay um i have a website but it's actually right now being re rebuilt i've oh. finally gotten around to it but at uh, jbccom.com okay and um i just i've always you know Ever since I was a kid, really, I was kind of a frontline documentary junkie. Yeah. Um, and I've just always found that, that not that fictional stories aren't enjoyable, yeah. but when you tell a story and the kicker is that this actually happened and the, these are real people living through this, that's always been the special sauce that really I love to work in. All right. Well, this is why we want to talk about Food Fight. Uh, uh, the, the the essentially the documentary about the uh, the, the, the Demula's family, okay, and Market Basket, and, and it's kind of close to me because years ago I haven't seen Arthur T, okay, but I used to play hockey with him when I was a kid and whatever, and I knew his sisters, and uh, it, it's grown to like seventy locations in, in Massachusetts, New Hampshire, and Maine, and uh, where there's twenty five thousand employees, it's, it's a big deal. Yeah, and and, and not only that is it's also really indicative, uh, Jay, because you know I'm a researcher and um, what's going on in the country because uh, involves uh, Wall Street financial engineering, mm -hmm. and, and um, it's not just isolated. Uh, in, in New England, I mean, if you look at um, uh, some of these major uh, grocery chains are owned by private equity firms now, mm -hmm. like uh, Southeastern Grocers, which is one of the biggest in the country. They went bankrupt this year. Uh, Albertsons, which is the largest, uh, uh, who was actually uh, one of the characters. In Felicia Thornton. Felicia Thornton, oh, okay. Worked with that. It's yep. now the largest uh, uh, grocery chain in the United States. And, um, and it's run by Cerber it's owned by Cerberus Capital, who... By the way, bankrupted Chrysler Motors and General Motors Acceptance Corporation and Remington and all these things. So these are really major players in, in the uh, in, in America now, and so because everyone has to eat. So I like to have right. analogies where good economy, uh, bad economy. People got to eat, but you know, I'm saying finance is even creeping in really, really big. Except even, Phil because he looks so trim, doesn't he? <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, <laughs> at 47. At 47. Oh. He, uh, uh, 27? Behavior, behavior management where uh, I stop having comfortable seating in my house so I don't really sit down and, and sit and eat. I kind of stand and move all the time. That's the way to do it. So anyway, so um, when when you hit, heard, when I heard you do this documentary food fight, uh, I said, oh, this is, I, said, I didn't even really totally understand the story because I knew it was a it was a huge case for the, 
essentially the Demoulis family employed all the law firms in, in Boston, and uh, it was it was a, I know it was a big win for the lawyers. One newspaper said the full uh, the full Legal Employment Act. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was the Demoulis family. And, yep. And uh, so, how did you uh, say I'm going to do a documentary on this thing? I was half smart and half dumb luck. I'll, I'll give myself a little more credit than I usually do, but um, I had known that this story um, was was there for, for quite a long time. Uh, uh, if you remember, when you would drive up and down the seacoast, you would see this kind of octagonal building um, that was called, I believe, the Farragut Hotel. Well, that was a oh, the Farragut? Oh, yeah, sure. That no. was a Demoulis property. I know And it that was. was my window into how it happened, was that it was built, and it sat there for years, nothing being done with it, and then it was torn down. Yeah. And somehow... Mike, yeah, that, Mike Demoulis tore it down. That yeah. was a physical <laughs> symbol of sort of the, the yeah. going back and forth. So a friend of mine, just, you know, having a beer... Um, had suggested, you know, you might, uh, I, we, you know, we tend to talk about documentary ideas, and I'd, I'd like to maybe try to get another project off the ground. Work seemed to be going well, and that's what I do is I do a lot of client work. I love it and enjoy it, and it kind of provides me sometimes the space to kind of try to hatch an idea and see if I can get it funded. Um, and said, you know, you should really consider <clears throat> maybe doing something on this incredible family history. You know, you've got this friendly, no-frills supermarket, and then you've got this family in constant turmoil. It's, yeah. And I thought about it. And so I started doing some background interviews and, you know, just sort of getting some sources and sort of seeing is there anything there. And then one day in 2013, I got a text saying, something's happened. I don't exactly know what, but this is big. And this yeah. could threaten the entire company. And that was just before it hit the news, right? Uh, well or before. As it was. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah. yeah. So um, I started kind of trying to find out what it was. I didn't even really know what I was finding out that Arthur T had lost control of the board, yep. whatever that was, and um, that there were potentially some severe consequences. A friend of mine, I, I found out that there was going to be a rally that Arthur T might show up at in Waltham. Okay. where they had um, begun to develop a plaza um, and, and, and put a market basket in. And it had been halted. So the minute Arthur T. lost control of the board, they halted the project. Okay. And there was going to be a protest. The mayor was going to be there. And Arthur T. was going to possibly show up and talk and speak to the fact that we've got to get this store built. You know, we need to blah, blah, blah. So I showed up and with a camera, and there was a flatbed truck, save market basket placards, and he arrives in a Ford Fusion, steps out, That's and, I, <laughs> and I just held my camera above my head and watched these people. Now, he was still the president of the company. He had just lost control of the board. The way the people connected with him was unlike anything I'd ever seen, and I thought, this is either an amazing relationship that a that a that a uh, 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 an executive has with his co with his employees yeah. or it's kind of creepy <laughs> you know in, in kind of a scientology kind of like eh. and i wasn't really sure but then i heard him speak you know on a megaphone i mean it, it looked like huey long for goodness sake <laughs> you know you don't you don't see this kind of protest as much anymore and after that, and, and just beginning to try to interview a couple of people around, the Market Basket people at the time, who I would later get to know, were not happy I was there and were incredibly suspicious about what I was doing. Yeah. So there was one other uh, TV station or TV crew there. 
And um, so I just decided at that point, I'm in. <laughs> Wherever this story goes, I it. have to follow it. And it was very slow developing from there. This is October of 2013. It wasn't until June that he was fired in 2014. That's okay. That's when Artie was uh, fired. Yes. Yeah, okay. But um, I kept my um, I kept my truck filled with gear every single day. And every day I went into the office, I would get texts from you know sources that I was developing. You got to get down here. This is happening. You got to go to Tewksbury. You got to go to Boston. You got to go here. And I just, I, did, I won't say I shuttered my company, but you had to just be available any time of day or night to go cover this thing because it was actually happening in real time. How, how, did you, how did you raise money, funds for this? Did you use Kickstarter or something like that? Yes. That's yeah. how we got our kind of starter funding was through Kickstarter. But that wasn't until the end. So I didn't, you know, I should have probably been smarter and more savvy. <laughs> but you just, you had to cover it every single day and I at a certain point I knew this was going to be a big story there was one day that was walkout day so at the at four o'clock at the end of the day on July 17th that was the last day that the people at the main office in the warehouse were going to be walking out okay and when I was when it was happening there was somebody from the Eagle Tribune a, a writer from the New York Times and myself and I think one camera crew, and that was it. But you had someone from the Times, so the t- they knew something big was They up. knew something was going on, but that was it. The next day when they had their first rally next to the corporate office, yep. everybody was there, like camera row. You know, four, five, seven, some of the national networks, uh, uh, PBS was there. You know, so it, it literally exploded at that point. So even though I hadn't raised any money for it yet, I, I knew that this was potentially a really – big story and that I kind of got in before nearly anybody else did well that's, that's a great story because you follow your heart on that and uh, I, I admire you because you're a small business person and what did, uh, your wife probably didn't uh, uh, say Jay what are you crazy doing this because it she, she had long determined that even before <laughs> this and, and I guess maybe this just cemented uh, that I was crazy but I mean she was my family was fantastic because I would literally be home you know, doing something, we'd be having dinner, and then I'd get a text, and it's like, you know, there's something going on down at the warehouse related to the strike or whatever, and I'd have to just pick up and go, you know. And so I, I wore a path to, you know, the Tewksbury headquarters, a couple of other places in the process. Now, um, how long did the whole filming take of this? Um, well, it, it you know, it pretty much started in October of 2013, we wrapped the the actual on the ground filming, you know, pretty much wrapped in the aftermath of when the strike ended. So he, you know, he got up on that flatbed truck when uh, he had been reappointed back into the company. Um, we covered that, and then we covered some of the, you know, things that happened afterwards. Yeah. But then there was sort of a a a, a get back to work, um, you know, no talking period of time. Um, and then about four months afterwards, uh, we began to be given permission to talk with essentially the ringleaders and the key characters and get their stories. And I was a little concerned because you don't know, like, are they going to forget? Yeah. Is it going to, you know, you want to get them right after in the debriefing. 
Well, it turned out to be completely the opposite, that having a little time and a little time to think about it and, you know, kind of let what happened marinate with them when we started doing the interviews. And you can see it. I mean, they just they went back there and they like lived it all over again and told us, you know, some of the most amazing stories of what was really going on. And these are people who have worked for the company for 20, 30 years. Well, like, there's two things. These are people who work for the company 20, 30, yeah. 40 years. Yeah. And these are also people who are not, you know, th- th- there's a there's a protocol and there's rules and there's ways you work with Market Basket. And, and that's the way it goes. These are not people who are built to buck the trend. These yeah. are not people who are made to do what they did. Um, and so that dichotomy was fascinating, you know, that, that they, they dis- I mean, I, a lot of people thought that there were really phony aspects of the story. I can tell you that when they walked out, they, they had a couple of ideas, but they really had no idea how to run a job action. And they kind of made it up as they went along. That's why we had that story in the in the film. It, you know, it's sort of a metaphor that the um, <clears throat> the Tewksbury policeman who'd worked a number of union strikes kind of know knew how a yeah, yeah, yeah. how a picket line yeah, yeah, worked. Yeah, yeah. And they're like, fellas, you know, you can you can go you go around in a circle. You can block traffic for a certain period of time because they were all just sitting out there holding signs. And that was kind of a metaphor for the whole caper of how they learned how to do this. Yeah, well, you know, but I there's a human aspect, which is the big thing. I like it's the story of uh, Main Street overcoming Wall Street because this is a, uh, you know, when Arthur S. took over the company, when they kicked out Ar- Ar- Arthur T., Artie as I knew him, um, you know, uh, it, it's like something like Coelho DeVille, Felicia Norton, okay, uh, took over running the company. And, right. You know, and in and, and, and the, and the true private equity fashion, she said, okay, Arthur S., let's vacuum out uh, – 300 million and for a concern like Demul that's a big deal because you get to have, you know buy mil- tens of millions of dollars worth of food each week but also the story on the other side to the employees before they walked was this is a well-oiled machine nothing's going to change you know you we've this is you a will great still have your job yes this is a great company shelves, yeah. and where you know and then and well, then the, the was work that, is that the story they told the people before they, they oh they there were meetings where they were like this is a well-oiled machine N- nothing you know nothing's going to change this is uh you know they were they were making major efforts to outreach to the employees and make sure they knew that you know and, and their response was well if we've if we've been going gangbusters and things are so great why is Arthur T gone? Like, <laughs> duh. Why is kind of the architect of all of this gone? And uh, you know, after a certain while, I mean, they had pretty well figured out on their own by the time they struck that this was going to be sold off to. It was actually probably uh, Del Hayes, right? Del Hayes, the, the up, up in, uh, or uh, actually, Server is actually was a potential acquirer yep. as well. Well, at that time, the the big name was Del Hayes, yeah. Hannaford's parent, yeah. Yeah. and they were pretty sure that you know that was the thing is that if we, you know, these are people who uh, value having that job, but they had determined that we're going to lose our job anyways. Yeah. So we might as well take a shot at. Either getting Arthur T back or driving the company into the ground. Yeah. Um, yeah, because that's what happens. So, th- so I didn't, and so they were essentially saying everything all is well in and market basket, but in, in, in the means yes. in the uh, in the on one hand and then the other hand, they're, they're very back. quickly they couldn't live up to it because you'll see you you see it in the film. Um, you know, they had this meeting that you know 
everything's going to be fine. No one's going to be fired. And then within days, they went down to the um, uh, a few of the board members, the the new board members, mm-hmm. showed up at the Indian Ridge Country Club, oh, which the <laughs> Demolish family owns, oh, yeah. which is a, a DSM incorporated property. <laughs> And wanted to change the locks and lay off 10, 12 people, you know, uh, fire 10, 12 people. And that's when, you know, the ringleaders were like, we can't trust these people. You're telling us that nothing's going to change. No one's going to be fired. And then three days later or four days later, you're down trying to shutter a plate, you know, change the locks and fire 10 people. So that's when it's like, okay, this is either this is we're going down and we're either going to fight or it's just going to. You know, it's it's going to happen. Yeah. So, but it's amazing. It's an amazing story of loyalty, uh, and you know, which you don't. I mean, I you just don't see it in in America too much. It's about the little guy. I mean, I I thought it was the underdog, and uh, and at first, one of the gets, one of the keys was to try to, and I, you know, went nine ways to Sunday was to get an interview with Arthur T. Either before he was fired, after he was fired, or after the fact. Yeah. And what I learned is. The story wasn't really about him. It was really about what these people were doing yeah, in the name of this person. You know, he's in it. You see him in various capacities, but he really didn't have much to say. You know, it was going to be largely, and I don't begrudge him, largely locker room stuff. You know, well, you know, we're doing the best we yeah, can. Yeah. We're trying to, you know, we, we're going day to day. And so I kind of likened it to he was Bruce the Shark in uh, Jaws. You know, you see him. He's at the center of the story, but he's not really the story. The story is what everyone is doing to try to save this culture, this company and culture that they treasure. It's also, I mean, parents who worked there brought their children to work there. You know, so it's generations of of good, hardworking American people and who they thought— working for a good, hardworking American person yes. who he was the faceblade for, but there was all this engineering and all this backward stuff that he had no control over. So he was still telling them that everything was okay when it really wasn't. So, right, real life, you know, real life new economics hit a place that was based on these old line business models like Care for you people, respect, yeah. well, you, well, and also you respect the people who are, your executives because they've done every job that you do so everybody yeah. who started who who yeah. was an executive at market they don't bring in they didn't bring in people they never brought in people from the outside so the guy who's you know ripping you a new one about why that end cap doesn't look good you take it because he's been a stock person he's been the same person that he's, he's, he's yeah, he right. started bagging groceries back in the day we called that a uh, uh, customer assistant product packager Yes, exactly. <laughs> Facilitator. Pay, paying your dues. Yeah. Paying your dues. <laughs> paying yeah. your dues. Yeah. Exactly. So, you know, these two worlds, the fact that these two worlds collided um, was was really to me, and, and what these folks did, you know, it's almost like there's a little bit of a Smokey and the Bandit, you know, caper of getting yeah. the cores across country. Um, that was really at the heart of the story and and not getting Arthur T. to talk. So, uh that's interesting. So I'm actually I'm sending Arthur T. a note. I haven't talked to him in years. Maybe he'll come on and talk about it because it's a great story. But we have Jay Childs here, and so we're you know I I love the story because it's just a you know because they talk about the one percent and all that stuff and um, um you know and uh, obviously the Demolition family is very very wealthy. Okay, and um, uh, you know <laughs> then they built that other hotel in Rye too where the Farragut was, and they had 
they never was occupied. They tore it down. So it was, it was kind of like, to me, it was like a Game of Thrones, you know, between the, the Arthur, yeah. S. Fang, Arthur S. faction and the Arthur T. faction. Right. Instead of seven kingdoms, there were two. <laughs> right, exactly. Right, right, yeah. right. <laughs> so so that, 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 that's why it appealed to me. Because I, I knew the guy. I mean, I haven't seen Arthur in yeah. a long time. But I said, gee whiz, I know this guy. Um, so, but the thing is, it was, it was so motivating in that, even the customers back back the strikers. Am I correct, Jay? Tell us about that. Yes, and that's one of the things. Again, that's one of the things that kind of everyone was fighting for. What was the real story? You know. Yeah. And um, as best I can determine, um, they that was a, a wrinkle that the customers added that they were not anticipating, and it ended up being the closer. You know, that th- that really helped them win was they. You know, they stopped deliveries to the store. But they wanted to keep the stores open because their their intention was to save the company by killing it almost. Yeah, that's, um, that's Wall Street. Yeah. But 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 the well no no but this was the yeah. this was the 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 ringleaders yeah. idea. Yeah. The only way we're going to save it is to drive it into the ground. True. Um, when the customer, you know, this is where they really realized that two million customers were like passionate about their store. Um, they said, "What can we do to help?" And, you know, Jim Fantini in the film said, you know, we really didn't have a good answer. Support us, you know, uh, you know, whatever you can do. And it was really the customers who put on their own rally who said, I know what we're going to do. We're not going to shop there anymore. Now, you know, for a major retailer, boycotts really don't work. Yeah. You know, boycott Walmart or boycott whoever. And, you know, you can't get consensus to do it. Well, about ninety percent of their shoppers just stopped shopping, and it 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 dropped like a stone. And when that happened, that's what got attention in the boards room, in the boardrooms. Like that was like, uh oh, because that could really, um, that could be the, the the key thing that that puts sand in the gears of a sale towards a Delhaze is that if you see that the customers are going to go elsewhere, they're not going to shop in these stores. And it held. So you every once in a while you would have, you know, a person kind of wander in and um but but pretty much the people just stopped shopping and they weren't gonna shop until Arthur T was was back. And then the media started covering that aspect of the story. And I think that's what really began the the other side to a certain extent saying, Okay, well we've gotta, you know, we've gotta pay attention to this. Now the thing is, this was not a new union shop. This is just a, uh, you know, just a regular family business, and uh, a lot of people in the area are really impressed by Dumoulin's because they all, even all the kids there, they still they all have to wear a tie and stuff like that. They all have to wear a white shirt, white shirt, and crisp tie, tie. crisp yep. tie, you know, nice blouse if yeah, you're a woman. Yeah, yeah exactly. It's, it's really and uh, it's old school, but it, I think there's a lot of good to be said about it. But um, one of the interesting angles there, though, is I was going to these rallies, these. 5,000 yeah. to 10,000 people rallies. There were union representatives who were there and were wanting to, you know, tell them essentially that you really, in order to pull this off, you yeah. really need to have union support. Yeah. And uh, the, the most of the executive types who were part of the film who work for Market Basket do not believe in unions, can't stand unions. Yeah. Um, maybe not understanding that not every boss is a benevolent boss. I mean, they don't need it because they have a boss who's like that. But there's a lot of other places in the world where you don't have an Arthur T. Yeah. In the end, 
um, from what I was able to glean, some of the union representation said, listen, you don't, you don't need us. You're, you're doing fine uh, the way you're handling really? it. Really? But we're here if you need anything because we want you to win. Regardless of union, no union, we want you to win and we'll do whatever we can to help you, even though it's not going to result in a unionization. How much luck have you had getting this story across the country, Jay? Because to me, as, as I say, because I've, I've studied it, I mean, uh, we're Wall Street essentially gets into the food business with Albertsons, which is owned by Cerberus. Uh, you had, as I say, Bilo Supermarkets, or the Southeastern Grocers, which went bankrupt this year, which is owned by Lone Star Funds, but owned by John Craigan, who's in Ireland with his billions of dollars, okay? Uh, we bankrupted that. And then you had Comvest out in Seattle go bankrupt, owned by private equity firm. You had Ron Burkle, the uh, supermarket magnate, you know, who's friends with Bill Clinton. He's bankrupt a bunch of them, like Fresh and Easy and so forth. So to me, You're I'm, a human gad chart, aren't you? Yeah, so, <laughs> yeah, yeah. This connects to this, connects yeah. to that, so, connects to so that. So my, right. my, my point is, is that you, if you had any luck getting this out as, as a bigger story, because to me, um, it's, a, it's a heartwarming story because it's about a family and about the people rising up. But it's also, it's, it, this is not an isolated incident. I'm no. saying this, 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 this uh, uh, if you had any luck getting it out across the country, Jay? Well, the first thing, and you know, where I was a little slow in getting going, um, I knew after this, uh, when the strike wrapped, essentially, that this was too big for me to try to figure out on my yeah. own. So I brought in my co-producer, Melissa Paley, and co-producer and editor, Tom Bennett, who were just, you know, fantastic in, like, the three of us with maybe a few other people handling the whole thing. Um, and what we found after we released it around here was, you know, for good and for ill, it was embraced and loved as a great New England story yeah. with some of that New England grit and all of those, you know, Tewksbury. I, I know the difference now between a Lowell accent and a Tewksbury <laughs> accent. Um, but, but that can also sometimes hamstring because yeah. it's so identified with a place. And so we're, um, uh, Melissa, Tom, and I have been talking with uh, a couple of uh, offers from distributors to begin, only now, <laughs> you know, to begin to push it out beyond uh, New England. Well, because now it's considered retro. <laughs> right. Well, and, and, you know, the other thing is, as an example, uh, you know, Stronger came out, uh, Patriot's Day, uh, even, you know, Goodwill Hunting. I mean, just because something is is based in a, in a place and and even has a, an affinity for that place doesn't mean it i mean this this is a national story well, that, this that, is an international story well, that, well, that's, that's that's my so point so we're slow but you know melissa tom and i are slow but dogged you know in trying to keep keep moving this thing cuz it's that's the other thing with a dock over over a, a narrative you know a lot of people across the country have no idea the, the, you know, they may have heard about the there story. Was a blip on somewhere on their screen, but it'll be new to them yeah. when they see. Oh my goodness, this, this is, is great! I had no idea that this story that I heard about was this in depth and human interested. Right. And you know, the kicker nationally for a lot of these stories is, you know, they, you know, David takes on Goliath, and in the end, you know, he fails. But what a what an effort, you know. And and our point is, they won. Like they they, they did this. They actually pulled it off. Yeah, and, and and my my bigger point, I'd be happy to share this research for you because I've been working on this other book on private equity, and uh, it will help you guys promote it. This is you know this is not an isolated incident, you know, right? You know this is not an isolated at all. I mean, 
KKR and Victory Capital would, and Victory Capital with Joe with Joe Lieberman works to put all these Spanish grocers together and the whole thing. So it's a lot of this financial engineering which is going on. And the reason why I, I think is appropriate because people don't understand private equity interest deductions or any of this crap. Okay, uh, but they do. Everyone's got to eat. You yes. Know? <laughs> right. So so I, so but I'm saying is that if I if I could uh, help you with that, uh, you know, because it it is a when I saw it, it's it's it's, it's a, a micro organism of a bigger story. And 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 what has been interesting, and I don't know if it's a you know a follow up or how it would happen, but to follow the company afterwards, and you know the struggle to go from about six hundred million in the bank to a million and a half in the hole. How do you you know how do you maintain a culture when you have this, those kinds of pressures? They've opened, and I may be wrong. Somewhere between five and eight new stores. Have they? Have they recently? Uh, yes, since um, since the the job action concluded. Yeah. Because that's really their only way to um, increase revenue is to you know is to open new stores in areas that they haven't tapped yet. So they've opened some new stores. They still operate out of essentially one perishable, one non-perishable, and a tiny satellite warehouse in Lawrence. Um, so. I get a sense that you know there might be some growing pains there with the fact that as they geographically expand, I believe there's a second main one on the drawing board or somewhere in the process. But that balancing act between what can you do to maintain this culture when you know the underpinnings of your company have changed drastically from the old days. Yeah, because they had to borrow half a billion dollars from, excuse me, um, from uh, Blackstone to to, uh, to refloat the company because the uh, see and that's information that you've <coughs> told me because yeah. there was always sort of this wondering of you know were they able to get together a conglomeration of regular bank financers or how was that all going to come together? It's it's private equity, it's debt, and, and so they have to. So our FTT is going to be cut really careful because if you know if they ever defaulted that they. Blackstone could come in mm-hmm. and swoop the company for pennies in the dollar. So now the main backlash that they did that they did uh, face, whether it's true or not, and you would know, but right about the time in the months after the 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 work action concluded and he took the company back, supposedly within the economy, food prices were going up across the board yeah. in the economy. And so the perception was, or the complaint was, that prices were, you know, here we go. Now you're, you know, now you're being financed, and look at all of our food prices going up. And they were trying very, very hard to communicate that, you know, to whatever degree food prices are going up, it's it's systemic. It's not us. I think I remember that I couldn't buy avocados for a day because they said they wouldn't carry them because they were too expensive. Really, I, th- I I really want to remember that as being a market basket experience about five years, three years ago, I mm-hmm. think. But it's still, you know, it's still eerie for me to go back and see some of the footage and you know rewatch the film a little bit and see that there was this period of time where there was like literally nothing on the shelf. Yeah, <laughs> it's spooky. No meat, no dairy. I mean, <laughs> and open, and it's yeah. open for business. Were they open know? during that? I saw yeah. uh, in the film. It's. Uh, that was key to keep them open, to keep those paychecks coming and minimize as as much um, hurt to the employees as possible while maximizing the damage to the company financially. Oh, so when the when the shelves were bare, they were open. Yes, but it's they, be, they yes, the, the, the warehouses. The, the the beauty of this, if you want to talk about David and Goliath, when Arthur T was fired that first day, I think it was 
June 28th. So the, the, the dates get a little fuzzy. Yep. This is what happens when you're over 50, Phil, by the way. <laughs> um, the thing that was just a little bit fuzzy uh, was that the day after um, he was fired, the first people to step up and who hatched this idea were the warehouse workers, no who are some of the lower paid you know, hourly uh, workers in, in the company. And they came to Dean Joyce, the warehouse manager, and said, we'll walk today. We'll leave today. And they were in many, that's why Nick Rivera was such a key character, was there were people who were in no financial position to do this. That's an amazed who me. Who were like, we'll go right now. And so that was the first leg of the stool, was they just stopped delivering to the stores, but then kept the stores open. So what's new? Uh, I know you got to leave in a bit, uh, Jay. So what's 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 on what's the new uh, projects for Jay Childs uh, on the horizon? Well, um, we are in the process of uh, fundraising and kind of getting all the eggs together for a sequel to a film and a project. Uh, it was a book. Now it'll be probably a discussion guide and some web um, elements to a, a project we did ten years ago: communities and consequences. So we've been approached by some organizations that are interested in, you know, when we did, it was, it's about the graying of New Hampshire. It extends to New England, but it's, but it's particularly uh, salient in New Hampshire. When we did the first project, we were just trying to put the conversation on the table that not a lot of people were really thinking about, that we were the sixth oldest state in the country. We are, huh? Yeah. And well, that was 10 years ago. And we just wanted to put this on the table that, you know, this this could impact our economy. This could impact our, our way of life, you know. And now we're the second. So we're behind Maine. But well, we're, Maine's the oldest? Yes, yeah. Maine's the oldest. and But we are the most rapidly aging in the entire country. Mm-hmm. And so now we're kind of back uh, to not just talk about the situation, which is what we're, our goal was back then, but to, to go around the state, literally, like, you know, drive around the state and really explore the stories of where the solutions are. How are we going to reverse this trend? And how are we going to? Because Does the original one you made before The Man in the Mountain, and now you have to make the sequel for After the Man in the after Mountain. After the Man, right, exactly. Yeah, right, this right. is the, 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 right. And that might be a good visual metaphor. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, you know, now it's, it, you know, a lot of times you don't do anything about an issue until it hits the economy, yeah. right? Now it's everywhere people are talking about workforce and the lack of workforce. And that's where it's really being felt the most, and it's it's where people want to address it and, and solve it the most. So we're um, hopefully if we get all of our funding in order and everything, we're going to be uh, – um, out there, going across the state, kind of you know, trying to find where the solutions are to reverse this trend and and get us more vibrant and younger and and hopefully it'll be a good news story. Wow, I didn't know. So we're the second oldest in the country now, huh? Second oldest, I think average age. Peter Francis. Um, I'm working with uh, Caroline Amport Piper, Lorraine Merrill, and demographer Peter Francis, and he's been tracking this for years. Really? And I think he. Yeah, I reserve the right to be wrong, but uh, I think we're around 43 is our median age or average age um, and, and, and climbing. And so, you know, as the state goes older, they need services. And if there's not the younger people around to fill those jobs, um, we, could be in, we could be in big trouble. Well, it's been a wonderful show, Jay, to have you on here. You listen to uh, WSCA in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. My name is Barry James Dyke. If you need to find out more about me, go to barryjamesdyke.com. I'm here with 
Handsome Phil Kliger, who's... That's me. And the website is foodfightfilm.com. Yeah, if you want to know more about this. And then your, your other website is jbc... Uh, jbccom.com. jbccom.com. Yep. And, yeah, so uh, so anyhow, so I'd like to hear more about it. It's a great story, and I wish you every success possible in pushing this out uh, nationally because it, it's really – it's a story. It's a microeconomic story of, of a bigger macroeconomic problem. Exactly. And it, it, it's, you know, it, it's called Food Fight, and it's not really about food. It's about all of these other – it's about all of these other yes. issues. But thank you, Barry, and, and, and thank you, young – Young Phil. That's Phil. Okay. Thank you, Handsome Phil. Yeah. Phil. <laughs> uh, right on. Uh, okay. This has been The Economic Warrior with your host, Barry James Dyke. Broadcast live at WSCA Portsmouth Community Radio. Engineered by Phil Kleiger. If you have any questions about today's show or need an ally in conquering the battleground of finance, contact the warrior himself at barryjamesdyke.com. Of the world.